The stories we tell about the economy will change the economy itself. We have the order of operations backwards. Orthodox economic thinking has predicted the collapse of the economy as a consequence of taking on this debt, and it has never happened. When the federal government writes a check, it literally spends that money into existence. As long as the government owes U.S. dollars, it can always meet its obligation to pay U.S. dollars. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Goldie, in this episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk about an idea that you grabbed onto way before me, uh, MMT, or Modern Monetary Theory. And I just, I'm reflecting on the fact that you've been needling me about this for three years now, saying you should look at this, you should look at this. And I was like, I don't want to look at it. Sounds nuts <laughs> to me. But it has emerged, I think, as a very interesting and important way to think about the economy. And you should reflect a little bit about what grabbed you. Yeah, well, first of all, the big lesson here is always listen to Goldie. <laughs> you, you know, I understood your reluctance to really get into it because it's a, it's a complicated thing that we're not really expert about. And, yeah. and to borrow one of your favorite words, it's a little orthogonal to right. the theoretical work that, that we do. But what grabbed me, and this does tie into our work in the office and this entire podcast series is we focus a lot on the power of narrative, that uh, humans are a storytelling animal and stories are how we make sense of the world. So we've talked about this before. The stories we tell about the economy will change the economy itself. It will change the options that we see available to us yes. uh, and will open or close doors. And what struck me about MMT when I first heard about it was what a brilliant and compelling paradigm flip it represented. It, it was a narrative that really flipped my understanding of money and government spending and debt and deficits completely on its head. And essentially, what it told us is that our, our usual way of thinking about these things is that, oh, the government raises taxes or it borrows money so that it can spend it on services or infrastructure, et cetera, so that this is our big limit in terms of what we can do with government. Yeah. How much money can we raise in taxes without hurting the economy? How much money can we borrow before the deficits are too big? Yes. And then we get to spend that. And MMT says, no, actually, you've got that backwards, that for the federal government, at least, which... Uh, actually creates currency, when the federal government writes a check, it literally spends that money into existence. That you get a government check, you can always cash it. It is always good. You deposit a $100 check in your bank account, there's $100 in your bank account. The bank then goes to the Federal Reserve and the Fed gives it 100 bucks. Where did that money come from? 
the Federal Reserve created it yes. out of thin air. Right. Suddenly, there's $100 more in the economy. And then when you pay your taxes, the reverse happens. You write a check, it gets pulled out of your bank account. The bank then uh, takes that back to the Federal Reserve. It gets $100 you're taken giving, out. You're giving the government the money back, Right, but it, it now doesn't exist anymore. The yes. Fed just, now there's $100 less in the economy. So what happens is the government spends first, and then it taxes or it borrows money. And it does that, according to MMT, the primary purpose of taxes is not to pay for the things we want and need, but rather to constrain the money supply to keep inflation under control. Yeah, it's a fascinating turn. And, you know, what strikes me uh, the more I think about it is not so much that I am persuaded that MMT is absolutely correct, but that the orthodox way of thinking about this dynamic has to be wrong, well, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> because well, because uh, the nation has been running up deficits for 40 years since Reagan, who basically invented the budget deficit. And since that time, Orthodox economic thinking has predicted the collapse of the economy as a consequence of taking on this debt. And it has never happened, right? None of the predictions of the sort of neoclassical econs that it would crowd out borrowing and crowd out spending and that it would tip the economy over. None of these predictions have come true. So the fact that the existing way of thinking is definitely wrong <laughs> in some way opens up the possibility that something else may be right. So we've gotten a lot of calls about MMT. Hey there, this is Nick Hanauer. You've reached the magic voicemail box where you can leave me a question. All you have to do is state your name, where you're calling from, and your question as clearly as possible. So thanks. Hey, Nick. This is Colton from Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Arthur Bass. That's P-A-Z. Uh, I live in Bakersfield, California. I'm an economics high school teacher. Hi, my name is Daniel Blanco, and I'm calling from San Antonio, Texas. Hi, Nick. This is Scott from Pittsburgh. Um, and I was just wanting to get your thoughts on MMT, or modern monetary theory. My understanding that the government doesn't exactly work the same way as a normal person's income and expenses work. So can you talk about that and explain how the government does pay for things? My question was, what are your thoughts on um, modern monetary theory? I think if you change the narrative, maybe modern money theory could be the answer to many of our economic issues. So it's not a question, but hopefully in the future, you could research this theory of modern money theory. Thank you very much. Have a nice night. Thanks for taking my question. Thank you very much. Bye. Hi, my name's Sarah Lebovitz, and I'm a producer on Pitchfork Economics. So before we dig into the meat of MMT, what it is and how it could affect policy, let's talk about where it came from because it's not like a lot of the economic ideas we've talked about previously. For all things like paid family leave or taxing the rich or raising minimum wage might seem new, they're ideas we've seen implemented in other parts of the world. We've had proof that those ideas work. 
MMT is a little different in that it's kind of the new kid on the block. It started with a guy named Warren Mosler, a hedge fund manager turned economist. Bank loans create bank deposits to the penny. So if you borrow $200,000 to buy a house, you take out a loan for $200,000, the bank gives a $200,000 to whoever sold the house. The bank now has a $200,000 loan and there's been a $200,000 deposit that didn't exist before. And it's a bank liability and uh, we tend to call that money under certain... He described the theory in a book he wrote in 1993 called Soft Currency Economics. Although he didn't actually name the theory MMT, an Australian economist named Bill Mitchell did. But Warren thought up the idea and he liked the new name, so he started spreading it the way any good economic geek did in the mid-90s, via online message boards. You know, where all the post-Keynesian economists used to hang. As you might imagine, MMT didn't take off immediately. It's a hard theory for a neoliberal economist, or even just people living in a neoliberal economy, to grasp. Mosler couldn't get his papers published, or even just anyone to openly agree that MMT might be worth looking into. But thankfully for him, Warren was also a hedge fund manager. He co-founded broker-dealer AVMLP and investment firm Illinois Income Investors, which oversaw around $3.5 billion by the time he left in the late 1990s. Which meant that he had plenty of funds to promote MMT, and he used them to fund graduate studies and research institutes that could both flesh MMT out and hopefully make it a more reputable-seeming idea. Mosler had the time and resources to keep going, and we had some economic changes that might have helped give it a boost. The 2007 recession made people question a lot of our most basic economic assumptions. And the massive spending President Trump has done, combined with his tax cuts, have further pushed people to consider why it is exactly that a deficit is bad, or why the US can't just print more money, like they did during said recession. And progressive politicians are starting to point that out too. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has mentioned MMT theories when talking about the Green New Deal. I think it's important that we get away, and we also study our economic history, that government expenditure is not always just 100% offset by a tangible increase in that tax that same year. And so we certainly see the Republican embrace of that with the tax cut bill, which, I, which does not generate economic growth. I'm looking forward to really communicating that this is an investment. You know, for and we're about to hear from Stephanie Kelton, a major advocate for MMT and Bernie Sanders' economic advisor during the 2016 election. And we're hearing from you about it. It's an idea that's obviously picking up steam, just like so many other good economic theories are. So make sure to keep those phone calls coming. Who knows, maybe we can beat out the message boards of Mosler's day and spread MMT a little farther. If you have any questions or comments about the economy or just want to hear your voice on a podcast episode with Nick Hanauer, give us a call. The phone number is 731-388-9334. 
Well, ho- hopefully to convince you, Nick, uh, we're going to talk with Professor Stephanie Kelton. She's a professor of public policy and economics at Stony Brook University, previously chaired the economics department at the University of Missouri, and served as the chief economist to Bernie Sanders during his uh, 2016 presidential campaign. And by far, she is the biggest champion of MMT and uh, a focus of controversy among some of the more orthodox economists out there. How are you, Dr. Kelton? I'm fine. How are you? Good. And we're really, uh, we're really excited to get to talk to you about uh, modern monetary theory. Let's do it. Just so you know that neither Nick or I are economists. Nick is a successful businessman. I am a shameless propagandist. But, <laughs> but what we, we do know is good narrative. And the first time I read about MMT, I was just taken with the power of the narrative flip. That paradigm flip just, it was a, it's a beautiful story. So to start, if you could just explain to us what modern monetary theory is in as simple a story as, as you can tell us. Okay. Well, I think the, probably the simplest way is to say that almost everything that we've been taught to believe about money and deficits and debt is probably wrong. And I say that because I think that most people, to the extent that people think about government finance at all, when they hear things like the government is running budget deficits, they kind of recoil and they go, oh my God, that's terrible, right? A deficit is um, evidence that you're doing something wrong. You're not matching your spending and what you're taking in. Uh, I couldn't do that. Why are you doing that? This is clearly evidence of irresponsible behavior, right? So it's that tendency that I think we have to conflate the government's finances with our own, both because the finances that we're most familiar with are, of course, our own, and because our friendly politicians and pundits and others um, continue to repeat that the government is um, drowning in red ink and could face bankruptcy and needs to get its fiscal house in order. So even the the use of the term fiscal house harkens back to that yeah. individual household. And so the problems start there. And what MMT does is really just come in and remind people that governments are not like households, that households are merely, we call them users of the currency. Um, individual states, municipalities are also using the currency, and the federal government is the issuer of the U.S. dollar. And because it's the issuer, it's the source of the dollar, it can't run out of money, it can't face bills coming due that it can't afford to pay, it can't be pushed into bankruptcy like a, a private business. And so that, I would just say, that's as simple as I can give you as a sort of jumping off point. You had a piece, uh, I think it was last year in the Los Angeles Times, in which you said that, yes, the government could give everybody a pony if we could make enough ponies. <laughs> Explain this difference between the common perception of the order in which money is spent and taxed versus the way it actually is. Right. So the way that we tend to think that things work is that the government needs our money 
right? And we always hear people talk about taxpayer money and to ask the question if we want, uh, government is talking about doing some new investment in the economy, let's say for infrastructure, the question is, how are they going to pay for it? Where are they going to get the money? And we start with the assumption that the government has to go find the money somewhere. It has to raise the revenue. And we think that that can happen in one of two ways. Either they collect more dollars by taxing us or they borrow dollars from people who have them. So taxing and borrowing are two ways that the government can come up with dollars that it then spends into the economy. So the spending is the last thing that happens. And so what I did in that piece was to say that um, we have the order of operations backwards, that nobody in the economy could pay taxes with dollars or buy government bonds with dollars unless the government had first put the dollars out there. They had to come from somewhere. And so the way that it actually works is that Congress decides it wants to do infrastructure spending. And there's an appropriations process. An authorization is given for the government to go out and spend dollars into the economy. So the spending comes first. And after the government spends the dollars into the economy, then people get paid and they have an income and they pay back some of that in the form of taxes. And to the extent that the government spends more than it uh, collects back in taxes, it's leaving behind some dollars in the economy. And we call that deficit spending. And when the government runs a budget deficit, of course, it does sell bonds. And we call that government borrowing. So now think about what's happening. The government has spent, let's say, $100 into the economy. And it taxes, let's say, 90 of those dollars back out. That means that $10 are left somewhere in the economy for someone to hold. Now, because the government runs a deficit, it comes back and it says, okay, I'm now borrowing. Who wants 10 in U.S. Treasury securities, government bonds? And sure enough, someone in the economy would prefer to hold the interest-bearing U.S. Treasuries as opposed to just holding the cash. And so the borrowing is just a swapping out of some of the dollars that the government deposited into the economy by deficit spending for this um, different kind of government money, if you like, that has a little bit of interest attached to it. Exactly. So, Dr. Kelton, one of the things that I think makes this complicated and that I'm struggling with, and I think challenges lots of other people, is that the metaphor that we should use to kind of picture all of this in our heads is not the usual one, right? Like the household metaphor is very simple. It's intuitive. It's mm-hmm. pervasive. Can you suggest another metaphor that people can use to get their heads around how this works? I think it's not right, but let me suggest that in one of my last books, The Gardens of Democracy, we suggested the circulation system metaphor. But it, do you mm-hmm. think that, that captures it? Because our argument in that book was that, you know, people talk about government spending as if government spending actually extinguishes the value of the money, right? When when in fact, they're just moving money through the economy and, you know, the government no more spends money than the the body spends blood when it circulates it. Yeah. But have you thought about the metaphors that may yeah, work? Yeah, I have. I think that the one that you're using, the, the, the idea of a circular flow, kind of works if, if we're talking about just within the, the economy, the private sector of the economy, 
I, I think that the problem is, for me, if we start talking about a circular flow and government spending and taxes, then I get worried that what happens is people believe that the money the government collects in taxes comes back around to government and then funds new spending. And that's not what we want people to think. What, what I would suggest uh, instead, I guess, is to picture uh, a bathroom sink or a bathtub and to think of the government spending, think of a vertical um, line rather than a circle. So from the very top, the government is spending money into the economy. So maybe that's the water coming from the faucet into the sink. And now the the economy is being flooded with some some dollars that were spent into yep. it. But at the same time, the government is taxing some of that out. And so that's the drain. So that's just shooting straight down and it's it's just gone. It's it doesn't go back to government and fund the next round of spending. It's more like I don't like the metaphor printing money, but if I'm going to use it, I'll say that spending is like hitting the print key on the keyboard and taxing is like hitting the delete key. It's just removing some of the money that the government spent into the economy. So I think, yeah, a vertical line works better. So, Interesting. When, so you would say that the, the government spends money into existence and taxes it out of existence. Very nice. Perfect. Interesting. Better than I said it. Okay. And when it borrows money, what is it doing? Swapping one form of government money for another. I interesting. So all of this, uh, to our listeners who don't track this as carefully as knuckleheads like Goldie and myself, I think what's really important about your ideas are the impact that they have on our policy discussions, in particular around the debt and the deficit and austerity and um, you know, whether we can afford to continue to support the things like Social Security and so on and so forth. Can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. Let me start with the, the last one, because um, it's I think it's so important, Social Security. So, you know, there is this belief, and it's not just Republicans who will say Social Security and Medicare face all of these um, long-term fiscal challenges, and we're going to have to, you know, quote-unquote, reform these programs. They want to cut them. Um, but it's also Democrats who will say these sorts of things. And so sometimes when I'm talking with audiences, I'll just play a little clip of Alan Greenspan. Uh, I think this is just really important. I think Democrats should just play it on a loop, buy TV time and just play this on a loop, because Greenspan makes such an important point. He's under oath He's at the time, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. So you think this is a guy who understands something about our monetary system. And he's in there and he's testifying. And, and Paul Ryan, Congressman Paul Ryan, is asking questions of Alan Greenspan. And Ryan's teeing up a question that he just wants Alan Greenspan to agree with and then move on. And he says to Alan Greenspan, look, we both know Social Security is going broke. And don't you agree with me so that... Having personal retirement accounts is, a, is another way of making a, a future retiree benefits more secure for their retirement. And also, do you believe that personal retirement accounts as a component to a system of solvency does help improve solvency? Because when you have a personal retirement account policy, it, it's accompanied with a benefit offset. With that feature in place, do you believe that personal retirement accounts 
can help us achieve solvency for the system. Personal retirement accounts, personal retirement. He repeats it again and yeah. again, right? Privatization. So all he wants is a simple yes, and then we can get out of here. But instead of agreeing with him, Alan Greenspan drops a big, fat truth bomb, and it's really incredible. Greenspan leans into the microphone, and he challenges Paul Ryan's fundamental premise, which is that Social Security is running out of money and that the government can't afford to keep its promises to future retirees, their dependents, and the disabled because we don't have the money to keep our promise. So Greenspan well, says, I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't say, say that the uh, pay-as-you-go benefits are insecure in the sense that uh, <clears throat> There's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. The question is, how do you set up a system which assures that the real assets are created which those benefits are employed to purchase? So it's not a question of security. It's a question of the structure of a financial system which assures that the real resources are created for retirement as distinct from the cash. The cash itself is nice to have, but uh, it's got to be in the context of the real resources being created at the time those benefits are paid so that you can purchase real resources with the benefits, which of course are cash. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's Greenspan speak, so let's untangle. Greenspan is saying to Paul Ryan that we have demographics, uh, demographic changes taking place in this country, and we have for a long time. Boomers are moving into retirement in larger and larger waves, and as they leave the workforce, they leave behind a smaller and smaller pool of people to actually make the goods and services for our economy. So when they stop working and producing, they don't stop consuming. So the question is, as all of these folks move into retirement, are we going to be a productive enough economy in 10, 20, 30 years so that we can keep our promises in full to all of these future retirees, send the checks out, and these people can spend their money into an economy that is productive enough to avoid inflation? That's the challenge. And Greenspan understands it. And it's not about we can't afford it, the, we can't write the checks, the financial um, system you know, can't handle Social Security going forward. It's the real economy. It's our real productive capacity he's right. trying to, to draw attention to. So it can never be for the federal government, again, because it is the issue of the currency, it can never be about running out of money. It can never be about having payments that come due that you can't make on time. It can't happen in the, in the United States of America. It can't happen as long as the government is, owes U.S. dollars. It can always meet its obligation to pay U.S. dollars. But if you were profligate enough, you could spark inflation, which would be highly counterproductive. Is that Absolutely. Correct? Absolutely. So every every economy has essentially its own internal speed limit, right? You can only grow so fast 
with the resources that you have at your disposal at any point in time, meaning you have the number of workers that you have. You bring people into the labor force, but there are only so many people available. So once you get everybody who's willing and able to work working and you're running your factories at full capacity and the capital equipment is being fully utilized and raw materials are in short supply, once you get a tight economy operating at full capacity, then any additional spending carries inflation risk. Not just government spending, any additional spending runs the risk of uh, accelerating prices. So uh, every economy has its own internal limits, but there are also things that you can spend on today that actually build in more Mm -hmm. space in the economy, like infrastructure investment, education, R&D. So not probably tax cuts for rich people. Not so much so. (laughs) Right. No, but you know what else, though? It also doesn't use up a lot of your fiscal space. So just because we added, I think the estimate now is with the Republican tax cuts, $1.9 just because they did that, because of the way they did it, which is to say, you know, the windfall goes to the people who are least likely to turn around and spend much of that money into the economy. It actually didn't use up a lot of the fiscal space that we have. So it wasn't a good use of um, fiscal space, but it, it didn't, uh, it didn't eat up very much either. But what do you mean by fiscal space? That is a term of art I've not heard before. Yeah. (laughs) So it just means how much room there is in the economy that the government could either cut taxes or increase spending without creating inflation pressures. Okay. So the, the fiscal space is how much more could you add to deficits before they become a problem? You know, here in our office, I mean, a lot of what we do is try to tear down economic orthodoxy, and we get a lot of eye rolling in response. You're doing the same on other parts of economics. Do you feel like you're getting a fair and con- considerate evaluation of the theory or people just rejecting it because they're threatened by it? Well, if I could open up my calendar and show you uh, what what it looks like for the next almost year solid, um, I, my answer is that I, I've had an overwhelmingly positive response. I'm almost booked solid. Yeah. And these are, you know, a lot of it is people who um, work in markets for a living. And so these are the people who most deeply understand bond markets and finance and that sort of thing. And they're extremely um, excited to have me come and talk about all this kind of stuff. I did a long interview yesterday with a journalist from the Wall Street Journal. She's working on a big story. The New York Times will have a story out any day now. She's writing a very big feature piece on MMT. So, I mean, I feel like the wind is at our, our backs. I know that sometimes it's hard to um, look past some of the tweets and yeah. things that people say online, the but nasty in, yeah. yeah, in the real world, <laughs> in the real world, uh, life feels pretty good. Let's talk a little bit about the policy implications of MMT because I I think it's really powerful in the current political conversation to first of all knock away the how are you going to pay for it attack and actually focus on what we need to. Uh, be spending in, instead of how we're how we're going to raise the taxes to, to to pay for it. I saw, for example, you got into a, a Twitter thread a couple weeks ago on student loan forgiveness, and, and you made an important an important point that I hadn't really thought about before, 
where you said that that actually that money has already been spent. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that outside of MMT related to it? This this notion that essentially, since much of the student debt is owed to the federal government, that's just an account, an accounting maneuver. We could we could forgive that debt, and you're not actually spending anything into the economy. It's not using any fiscal space at all. Yeah, so that's more or less correct. In the paper that we did, my colleagues and I produced a pretty um, hefty report on the macroeconomic effects of canceling student loan debt. And there's about a trillion of the total 1.5 trillion that's already counted in part of the national debt. So eliminating 1.5 trillion doesn't add 1.5 trillion to the national debt. It adds significantly less than that. Plus you get growth effects from actually canceling student debt. So the economy grows, taxes increase and so forth. So it's a great bang for the buck, kind of a policy for fiscal stimulus, a type of fiscal stimulus. Yeah. I suspect it would be quite popular. Yeah, I mean, you got 44 million Americans who have student loan debt, but you know, it's not just the people who actually carry the student loan debt, it's their partners and their loved ones, it's their friends, it's, it it affects so many people well, when... it's the car dealers they're not visiting. Yeah, home builders, <laughs> right. car dealers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, all of that. So stuff. on a related uh, note, free public uh, college tuition... Uh, mm-hmm. I know you've written that as as long as we have enough professors and classrooms to uh, educate all those people, not not inflationary and not actually that expensive. When you, we, I think you said it was under eighty billion dollars. Well, I I think the estimates that I recall from my time on the Hill working with Senator Sanders, who of course introduced that College for All Act, I recall the estimate being something close to seventy billion a year. So, yeah, right. you're right there in that. In that ballpark, right? I think we got we got a similar number out of cap a few years ago, so that mm-hmm. sounds sounds mm-hmm. in the right ballpark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, what about applying MMT to uh, climate policy? Where's the role there? Well, look, I I've seen a lot of people um, online and in various places suggesting that because MMT, we can have a green new deal. And nobody has to pay higher taxes and we don't have to cut any other part of the budget. We'll just, the government will just spend the money. And that cannot be correct. At least not the kind of Green New Deal that people are talking about today. I mean, really ambitious trillions and trillions of dollars and doing it in a time frame that's really short, right? We're talking about basically fixing climate change, limiting emissions to no more than one, one and a half degrees Celsius, right, uh, within the 12 years that we've been given. Can we accomplish that without uh, doing some sort of uh, tax increase or making cuts to other parts of the budget? I don't believe that for a second. So um, MMT is not a um, get out of jail free card. It's yeah. not a free lunch. It's It just is a, a way of helping people understand how the federal budgeting process actually works how our monetary system actually works, and then reminding people that the limits are not on the financial side, they're in the real economy. And so when you do embark on a program like this, you have to do it really carefully and understand where the limits are and build the offsets in so that you don't create an inflation problem. 
Yeah. I mean, this doesn't sound like crazy talk at all, Nick. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. Are you? Are you, well, con- you told me it was going to be crazy talk. <laughs> are you? Are you? Are you convinced? Did she? Did she convince you? No. I mean, it's a very persuasive way of looking at you know how the economy functions, and uh, you know I think it puts um, into perspective how many decades of deficit panic have we been living through, right? I mean, it, it, you know, every in every cycle, there's this panic over the size of the deficit and how we're all going to be poor and the country's going to collapse and cats and dogs are going to live right. together. Pre- and so on. Pretty much in my lifetime since Ronald Reagan yeah. first blew <clears throat> up the budget. Right. Exactly. exactly. And you remember that when yeah. Reagan left office, the national debt was one and a half trillion dollars. Right. And we just crossed the $22 trillion threshold. You would think that if something bad was going to happen, it would have happened by now. Yes. But <laughs> you're right. The narrative never changes. Right. The sky is always falling. The yes. the uh, Armageddon is always right around the corner. Yes. And, and nothing happens. Yeah. And then, you know, people said with the Obama uh, deficits, oh, my God, the Obama deficits, we panicked and, you know, we shifted away from doing what we should have done. There was a pivot to austerity then with the fiscal cliff and the spending cap sequester and all that stuff. And then it was like, we're never going to be able to spend again. We have these enormous um, deficits and, and the national debt increased so much. And the Republicans walk in the door and just blow $1.9 trillion right out of the gate as they always do (laughs) i've got one final question i've been curious about is mmt you know with the u.s with the dollar as the global reserve currency is mmt kind of unique to the u.s or does it work for any country with a sovereign fiat currency Well, there are advantages, I'll say that, to having the global reserve currency. And there are also some burdens that it places on a country that is the world's global reserve currency. In other words, the only way that you can sustain the status as the global reserve currency is by allowing the rest of the world to accumulate your currency. I mean, that's what it means to be the world reserve currency. People have to be able to get it. They want to hold it. And the way that we the way that we deliver those dollars to the rest of the world is via government budget deficits and trade deficits. So the very two things that people get really worked up about are the two things that place us in the position as the global reserve currency leader. So that's, I would just like to say that. The question, the answer to the question, is it unique? Can only the U.S. Um, you know, behave this way with respect to its own budget and so forth? The answer is no. Um, look at Japan. I mean, that, Japan's not the only other example, but it's a good one because Japan's got a debt to GDP ratio today of about 240%. So uh, easily three times what the U.S. is currently sitting on. Interest rates, long-term interest rates are just above zero. There's no uh, inflation problem. So it's all quite manageable. So the U.S., Japan, yes. Greece, no, because they're, they're stuck, stuck to the euro. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, it's been a fascinating conversation and a really useful one. And I can just tell you that tons of people who listen to our podcast have been tweeting at us. Please, please, please <laughs> introduce, you know. MMT. You, we yeah, have to talk yeah, about MMT. Yeah, so we're super glad to get to do it. Well, thanks, guys, for having me. It was lots of fun. Okay, we'll oh, talk, thank s- you. talk soon. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. So, Nick. Were you convinced? <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Kelton was super persuasive, and I, I'm not sure I'm convinced 
uh, but I am absolutely persuaded that we need to open up our thinking to include at least this different way of conceptualizing the economy and what its limits are and what kind of policies can make sense within that broader picture. You know, I've tried to look at the math of this when I see the critiques of it, and it's just beyond me. But I'm not sure that it really matters, that it's actually possible that the orthodox monetary theory and modern monetary theory, maybe they're both right, in a sense, in the same way that, you know, light, is it a particle or a wave? It's both. It depends on how you measure it, how you look at it. And what's important to me, again, is not whether it's exactly right, but the way it changes how we think about the economy, how we think about money and debts and deficits. And, uh, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. If you think that the main constraint on government is the size of the deficit, well, that's going to constrain your policies. But if, as Professor Kelton argues, the main constraint is really inflation, not deficits, then you're a little more open to uh, things that expand the fiscal space instead of just worrying about how high that deficit goes. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as I've said before, I'm not sure she's right, but I definitely know the old way of thinking is wrong. And so that creates space for uh, policy and intellectual innovation in that sense. I do have one concern, which is that if you grant that uh, MMT is correct and that the, that the rate limiting factor is inflation, you can't have your cake and eat it too and both expand beyond neoclassical economic thinking with MMT and rely on the surety of neoclassical economics in terms of the likelihood that inflation gets away from you. In, in other words, one of the foundations is that people are rational deductive, probabilistic, maximizing, and the economy is in stable equilibrium. Well, if that's true, then inflation is a thing that isn't going to be an increasing returns phenomena that can get away from you and tear the economy apart. Uh, But if, as we've asserted, and I think it's absolutely true, people are emotional approximating and non-deductive, that we're not rational, we're super emotional, that If you get an inflationary cycle started with MMT by appropriately investing more, it may be far harder to get inflation back under control than the MMTers would have you believe. And I think that that is one of the potential vulnerabilities of that thinking. Well, I think what scares um, critics of it, and and one of the main critiques, they accuse the MMTers of uh, constantly moving the goalpost, uh, because... If you think about it, I think I think MMT comes at it much more from our perspective of the non-equilibrium system, that it's not clear-cut when inflation is a threat. Uh, under orthodox economics, there are certain rules and ratios that suggest yes. when you get beyond yeah. this in the economy, inflation will rear its ugly head, and we keep hearing that, and it never does. Uh, or hasn't it, recently. Or hasn't recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. And I think what Professor Kelton points out is that you know the economy has its own internal speed limit. We need to be looking at the internal speed limit of the economy, not budget deficits and debt. The question is determining what that speed limit is, and that's a lot cloudier 
in MMT than in the old yeah. orthodox models. And, and we run into that uh, ourselves all the time when we're talking about our economic theory as opposed to the uh, orthodox models, that it's a lot harder to model. It is a lot harder to model. That's uh, right. A non-equilibrium system. You don't system. have representative agents in equilibrium. Models get very, very hard to build. Yeah. Again, it, I would argue that just because you can't currently model it doesn't mean it's worse than models that can be done, but are just completely wrong it, and, yeah. and, and but, misleading. But, but I but, think we have yeah. a fellow traveler here, at least in the sense of being willing to challenge orthodoxy. Absolutely. You know, where at one point she said that almost everything we've been taught about money and debt and deficits is probably wrong. And that, that sounds a yeah, lot does. like yeah. one of our earlier yeah. episodes yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. where we said almost everything you're taught in Econ 101 is wrong. Yeah. And, you know, the community of people who care about modern monetary policy are definitely, you know, they're on to something for sure. Uh, my other takeaway from this, which I also find encouraging, is that, you know, MMT is getting a lot of traction now. Uh, but she started working on this 20 years ago. How long have you been at this, Nick? You know, going on 20 years, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, our day is <laughs> yeah, coming, yeah, Nick. I guess so. Yeah. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll talk about the economics of climate change with Washington State Governor and presidential candidate Jay Inslee and economist Fadal Kaboob. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening.